Hey, everybody. Welcome to Art Fight Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Nolan. I'm here with my co-host, Brian Siskin. Uh, last week, some of you might have tuned into the show or tried to tune into the show. We had the only uh, technical wipeout that we've had in more than 100 episodes. We've had little problems here and there, but we've never just had to wipe out a show. I'm happy to say that our guest from last week is a, is a gentleman and a scholar and uh, kind enough to uh, roll with the punches and come uh, be with us here today. Um, in 1999, uh, there was um, the beginning of a story called From Hell was uh, serialized in 1999. And then it was finally collected together in what I consider to be the greatest graphic novel of all time. That novel was written by Alan Moore. It tells the story of an investigation of the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, and one of the things that made that uh, publication so iconic was the incredibly like unique look that it had. And we're really happy to be here with Eddie Campbell today, who was the artist of From Hell. Andy, thank our, uh, <laughs> uh, Eddie, thank you so much for being here with us. <laughs> Lovely to be here. <laughs> yeah, we're really happy to have you here. You know, um, actually, uh, the the new version of From Hell, and we'll talk about the evolution of this project, um, was just published uh, at the end of August. It took us a minute to get you on the show. Obviously, we had a wipeout last week. But now, I mean, we're right at the edge of October, and it almost feels like it's a better time to be talking about such a spooky book. <laughs> I, know, I hadn't thought of it until this minute, but the uh, the Whitechapel murders took place between September and November. Ah, so yeah, so I've only just thought of that. Yeah, no, I think I think there's something to it. I think there's something to this the the timing of this whole thing. There's an invisible hand guiding it. I think. <laughs> so we, um, uh, I was able to get in touch with you um, uh, through the publisher of the new book, which is called From Hell, the Master Edition. Here and here. Um, and let's talk a little bit. Yeah, there look you go. At, look at the size of that. It's monstrous. It is monstrous. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. And um, why, don't we, why don't we talk a little bit about, let's just start at the beginning and talk a little bit about how you became the, the, off, the, the, uh, the artist for the original book. And then we can talk about how it's evolved since then and you know, got to the point that it's at now. Uh, well, Alan asked me, Alan and I had worked on a little thing before. I'd illustrated a little thing of his five years earlier. Mm -hmm. I, I'm also, uh, Steve Bissett, who was publishing it, at, at first, I'd, I'd stayed in our house when he was visiting England in 1986. Mm -hmm. And Alan Moore and Steve, Steve drew Swamp Thing, you'll remember. But he'd, he'd resolved that uh, big companies were wicked and he was going to publish a magazine himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and Alan was to do this as well. It was, there was a movement afoot to enable the little guy, the artist, the, the author, to publish his own work. It was going to be a great, magnificent movement where they, we, 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 we would overthrow the, the wicked corporations. <laughs> I love it. I wasn't involved at this point. <laughs> I just, <laughs> but, but, but none of this really worked. Alan had his own publishing label for a while mm. called Mad Love mm. and um, he was to publish a, a glorious masterpiece called Big Numbers. It was to be 12 issues and only two issues mm. would have been published. I think it would have been wonderful <laughs> if it got there a bit. But it, it does make you ask whether the, the, the fate of the artist is safe 
in the hands of the artist. Safe in his own hands. Right, the inmates running the asylum, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, I should, so I shouldn't be saying that. Later on, later I think we can relate. On, when I tried, I, 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 I had a great success with self-publishing. In fact, I published from hell when it was brought together in a book for the first time. I published that in 1999, ten years after mm -hmm. after we'd started it. And three publishers had gone bankrupt in the in the interim. Had, wow! For, for various reasons, you could write a book about. about what the hell went not just the whole industry was in a mess and mm -hmm. it, would, it would take too long to explain why it would bore everybody to tears mm -hmm. although i think i could make it funny but it would take an hour <laughs> it would take an, it would take an hour to explain it uh, but you guys were so, you know that during that era in the like late 90s going into the new millennium i mean that was a, that was a, a real kind of revolution going on in british comics am i right about that yes that's true, I suppose, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I just I feel like there was a lot of great stuff happening read, during that time. Maybe you, and, read, maybe you read comics. <laughs> <laughs> if you care about that, if you care about that sort of thing. Yeah, well, we obviously we would care about that. That's why I like sought you out to talk about this. So I'm, I'm, I, you know, I think there's a lot of great stuff that happened during that era. And a part of it for me, too, was that, you know, when I was a little kid uh, growing up in Detroit, it was like I was growing up during that era when – you know, uh, if you were an elementary school kid, you were reading Fantastic Four and uh, and uh, Spider-Man and things like that. And I basically was interested in comics like all the way up into like the, the beginning of X-Men and things like that. But then I got older. I got I gave up reading comic books and stuff. But by the time the late 90s are coming around and the graphic novel is starting to become a thing. Um, it's around that time that I started, you know, diving back in and I found things like From Hell and I found authors like Grant Morrison and people like this. And it just seemed like at that time, a lot of the best stuff that was being done was uh, coming out of Britain. This is true. Yes. <laughs> I was living in Australia all of this time, of course. Mm -hmm. Is that real? Okay. You've lived, you've lived a lot of different places, haven't you? I have. Yeah. I'm in Chicago now. I'm, mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I've never, I've never. I was in Australia for a long time. I was in Australia for twenty nine years, actually. Wow! So I, all the time I was drawing from, all the time I was drawing Victorian London. I was in, I was in sunny Brisbane. I was living in. That is crazy. In the tropical paradise. I always envisioned you guys just like in some like you know hold up and in you know somewhere in in London you know writing that book because it's. That that book is so much about the place, and and you guys evoke that place so well, especially you, you know, with the actual the actual look of the way that you describe yeah. London to our eyes. I think it was easier to do by not being there because I, I, modern London wasn't getting in the way. You know, it was, good point. It was easy. It was easier to reimagine old London from from. Books and paintings, mm -hmm. and old photographs. Mm -hmm. if, if it, whenever I found myself visiting actual London, I, I could see that uh, it it would get in the way. Mm -hmm. It was difficult. You had to un, you had to learn to unsee enough a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Only the whole. I can see how that would apparatus of you know the electrical apparatus of our world. 
would, would have made it difficult to, to see what it used to look like. Yeah, I can imagine that that would that that you know that actually being there could actually be more difficult instead of less difficult. Um, Brian's like showing uh, you know for people who are actually watching the video of this, Brian's showing a, a bit of the original from Hell. I think this is. Um, and one thing that people might notice, and Eddie, I swear to God, I'm sure that you've been asked this ten trillion times, but I I gotta ask you this question just because we we need to know the answer. Um, why did you decide to do the whole book in black and white? Because that's one of the things that made it so unique. Right. Remember, what, remember to what I was saying a minute ago, we were doing this ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have the resources to, to publish color. But publishing color wow. was, was a much more expensive and complicated thing then mm -hmm. than, it, than it is now. Right, because it's not just twice as twice as twice as complicated or difficult. Remember, there are, there's black ink, but then color means you're adding three other inks: red, yellow, and blue. It's mm -hmm. four times as complicated and as expensive as just doing a black and white thing, mm -hmm. theoretically. Right? Yeah, I understand. It's that. not exactly, but but it, and nowadays we can get, nowadays you can get um, very inexpensive color printing. Uh, in 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 China and Korea, which has it's changed the whole uh, economic balance. Uh -huh. Wanting to do a thing in color, but I didn't even consider it an option to do it in color. We were we were going to be publishing this thing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And remember what I said was that, that three publishers went out of business in those ten years. It color was just a it was just a an unnecessary complication. Remember also that during this time that Frank Miller started his his own um, series, uh, Sin City, and he mm -hmm. did it in black and white. He he made black and white cool. Yeah, good point. I, you know, I had never really thought about the con like the connection between those two. Yeah, that's interesting. It was happening at the same time. I think he started it in 1990. Yeah, uh, interesting. I. I wasn't big enough to make it cool, but, uh, <laughs> but Frank Miller doing it made it cool. Yeah, well, it's, I would say it's definitely cool. I mean, it's one of the things I loved about that book from the beginning. And, and really, one of the things we're always trying to do on this podcast is uncover stuff like this. It never occurred to me that you guys just did it for practical reasons. And it's like, hey, we did it ourselves and we had to do it in black and white. And it's almost like like the punk band that's got the terrible equipment that happens to sound great and unique. And all of a sudden, it's like the special thing about them is just yeah. the practicality. Yeah, but we were drawing it in the garage. <laughs> also interesting back then i think it was uh with the printing process it was a huge decision to uh just say oh, okay we're gonna just gonna do spot color you know or yeah it, was, it wasn't necessarily just between it was a big it was a big move when when frank talking about frank miller when he mm -hmm. did the yellow bastard every time the yellow bastard appears he's yellow and it was the only color in the book <laughs> just on one on one character and then he made a feature of that for a while i think he he used a red spot color in the next book but it was it was kind of witty that it was called the yellow bastard the only color in it was this guy who was yellow <laughs> i think that goes for just about anything that's uh sort of especially any works of art that are just kind of uh fetishized or adored you know irrationally as we do about all these things you know that are so beautiful led zeppelin four whatever it is right i <laughs> you know and, and i think that uh it's it 
this, the, it's always the same thing. It's always like, uh, you know, I think about, um, I know this is sort of a detour, but I, I was thinking about like the producer King Tubby out of Jamaica from the sixties mm. and the seventies. Uh, you know, he was called King Tubby, which sounds like this kind of really cool sort of regal, uh, studio producer name, but he was just called King Tubby cause he was really good with tubes cause he was a really good TV repairman. <laughs> and, that's, and that's how he got good with electronics. And then that, is what led to the sort of invention of his tech, you know, the dub technique. And it was sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, the things that are, uh, you know, the, the artifacts of, of, um, whatever you might be lacking at the time, you know, are really what become their aesthetic staple later, later on. And I find it's often something like what you're talking about, Eddie, where it's like, that's what we had, man. You know, like you hear that from <laughs> Just yeah. about any any art form it's like people people try to uh, put a lot of mystery around these things you know i ne- i did i never made a color book uh, you know I, I did color covers here and here and there when i was publishing my own comics but i'd never done a, a whole color book until 2004 which was after from hell was finished mm-hmm. and i've been doing color books continuously since then um and i now know how to do it i and it's not as easy as just coloring it in. This actually getting the color that if you paint color, just getting that color, getting the printed thing to look like the thing that you've painted, or you've hand separated the color, which is another way of doing. The whole process was just, you know, it was just it was a minefield of difficulties, and you just you get used to the the outcome never looking like the the, the way you planned it. Mm-hmm. It's just hugely complicated. I've got it now to where I can, I, I can design a thing. It'll come out. It'll come out the way I want it. Eighty percent. Eighty percent of the time. It sounds mm-hmm. like that your sort of uh, movement from from black and white to color sort of coincides with perhaps sounds like sort of your adoption of technology as part of your practice as things were actually developing to, you know, 2004, 2005 is a funny time, right? That's when it's, that's, that's a, almost like the time when computers finally started yeah. delivering on the promises they were making 20 years prior, you can actually use it for stuff now. And so it became like this thing to adopt. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, what I find really interesting is just that, you know, your adoption of technology, uh, you know, relative to, to the work, uh, you know, the, the See, I do, you know, I make, I make, I make my books on the computer now. I do everything on the computer. But because everything on the computer is in color, it's almost counter-intuitive, counteractive to try to do something in black and white on the computer. It's easier to do it in color. It's mm-hmm. like a hundred times easier to do it in color than nowadays. It's If you want to do something in black and white, it, it, like in, the, in, in my own books, my own... Um, Autobiographical books are way back in the day. I always use Zipatone. Mm-hmm. You know that you know those, those screens of, of of dots that give you a grey. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they used to use in the old old time right. comics and illustration like rasterization but, look. But but it's when I came to when I when I did my big Alec book, the Alec, the years have pants. When I did that, I had to scan all the artwork. But, mm. and, and most most of the pages and that's extremely difficult to mm. when you scan that and you get moiré patterns 
and you've got to you've got to devise complicated techniques for undoing that or for avoiding that. Mm. There, there was one picture that went all the way across the page where I had to replace all the dots, <laughs> and there was fifty lines of dots per inch. Oh no! I had I had to replace every dot on a, <laughs> on a sky. Now, I do it dot by dot. Like I do a block of I do a block of eight dots and I'd make every dot in that perfect because when you scan it, you, you the computer picks up a round dot, it picks up this little pixelated shape. Mm. And the next dot is a different pixelated shape. And the next one's different again. And you get this and then and then you get the pattern repeating. And this is why you get those wiry patterns. So to actually create a series of dots that are all exactly the same, even if they're not perfect circles, but they're all exactly the same. It takes an awful lot of thinking, a lot, a lot of work. So having my little square of eight dots, I'd, I'd then move that along to the next square and replace the next square. And then, and then I'd have a big square of 24 by 24, uh, 32. By, and eventually I could replace all the dots. <laughs> right. So what was, to actually repair and reprint via scanning in the computer artwork the way I used to do it's a huge pain in the arse mm -hmm. compared to doing things in color doing things in color you don't even, you don't even run out of paint <laughs> when you're doing it in the computer you, you just go to the color and put your color in the computer puts the color in it never runs out you don't yeah to go to the shop and <laughs> Do you find do you find it curious? Do you, do you find it curious, Eddie, that um, that there's sort of uh, you know younger people are coming up now without all these sort of uh, more analog ways of doing things, right? And so they kind of fetishize that stuff, right? And and they're really into sort of the ephemeral artifacts and you know like the collectory aspects of all that and the tangible. And I think that it's it's beautiful. I mean, it's great to, to do that. But I think that on the other side of it, it's interesting that, you know, you, uh, being the person that you would think would be like, okay, this is my tried and true practice for the last 30 years. I've been doing this really, you've evolved away from the sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, like fetishization of, of those ephemeral aspects of your process. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Another, another lovely thing about color now is that you have millions of colors, you know, if we tried to do color, I remember way back in the eighties, just we used to put color covers on on the on the, our comic books that we published. We were publishing ourselves in the mid eighties, but we had to hand separate the colors. So you, if you wanted a green, you got you got to lay down a screen of yellow dots, and then over a, a screen of blue dots, and and turn them slightly so that they're they're not going to create an unwanted wiry pattern. And you had to do all this by hand. Um, and you re you didn't have a million colors, you had mm. maybe a dozen. You had maybe a dozen. <laughs> yeah. If you were feeling venturous, you might go up to twenty. But you were just making more work for yourself. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you didn't want to go there. Off. You didn't want to self-correcting. Yeah. But we had to actually separate these colors by hand, and you had to, you had to make each color on a black sheet, because the black sheet tells the the printing plate. So. You can't actually see that it's yellow. You just have to know that it's yellow <laughs> from experience. Mm -hmm. And that black sheet tells the told the printing plate where where the lines and the dots were all to be cut. Mm -hmm. And then at some late stage, you actually see all the colors together, and you realize you you've missed something. You've <laughs> something. <laughs> Somebody's got one 
one white eye and one red eye or something. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> and that's how the character was born. <laughs> <laughs> red eye. <laughs> it's also easy now on the computer that to decide that you weren't going to use the computer seems to me counterproductive. Why would you? Mm. Why would you make it hard for yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. No, I think it's fascinating, and I think it's it's very interesting to me that that you know. This is just this whole turn that we've taken on this this uh, conversation. This is exactly why I love talking to people like you, Eddie, and finding about, out about how um, how these things actually come together in terms of the nuts and bolts of your actual process. Um, and you know, as as we're talking about evolving from you know working in the garage on your black and white comics to working on a computer and your color work, in between all this, from hell also evolves. In uh, uh, twenty eighteen, I have a, an article here I'm looking at from Slate. In October, actually, you know, uh, uh, of 2018, almost exactly the same time we're, that we're talking to you now, um, it was announced that From Hell was going to be re-released uh, as a serial again, but this time that it would be in color. And at least according to this article, um, it, it's a furor. People don't know what to do. People are up in arms. It's very funny to be talking to you now and finding out that the only reason you did it was because it was cheap. <laughs> but for lots of people, including myself, it was like part of the, 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 what made it so special was the fact that it was black and white. And when, when it was announced that it would be re-released in color, um, a lot of people, of course, purists, you know, the comic book world is full of them. They were, they couldn't believe it. What an outrage. What did, did you, did you get any of that, uh, that response? And what did you think of it? What are you, are you saying? It's like when Dylan went electric. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> no, that's exactly when Campbell went color. <laughs> when from hell went color, people, people blanched. <laughs> One or two people have said to me that they preferred it as a noir. Mm-hmm. But, but I haven't just colored it. I've, I've fixed a lot of things. You mm-hmm. know, and it's 600 pages. I mean, it, it looks like it's supposed to look, but there's, there's so many. There's one place where a, a guy arrives home and you see him outside. He's, he, Aber, Aberline, the police mm-hmm. detective. He's arriving home and you see him on the black and white one. He's outside his door and he's going in. So his wife's welcoming him, welcoming him home and he goes in. Then we see it from inside the hallway on the other side of the door. And I've got the hinges on the wrong side. <laughs> so you're able to the fix hinges things are like on that. the right going in, uh-huh. but they're on the right on the other. They should have switched to the left because we're on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm. So I had to take that picture and flip it over. Mm-hmm. But little things like that have bugged me for twenty years now. Mm-hmm. You're <laughs> yeah. going to tell me. You're going to tell me you never noticed. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I don't think I ever did notice that. That's I was funny. too busy. Go ahead, Brian. I was just going to say, it's just funny how, you know, whenever you finish anything, you, you're always, there's always going to be a few things and you tell yourself as a way to sort of move on psychologically, like, I won't, that's just, I'm just too into this right now. And in five years, I won't even remember that I was concerned about that. And then now you're going on like 20 years later, it's like, this still bugs the shit out of me. I can't, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it makes, I, I, I feel that. So, but the new, the new version of the story gave you a chance to make those fixes that you wanted to do all these years. Yeah. Yeah, there's loads of things. There's, you know, in 600 pages, there's, um, there's <laughs> looking at the, do you not have the new one there? Um, I've got the new one on my end, but it's going to be hard for me just to hold it up and right. show it to you. Yeah, we're looking at the old one. But, yeah. what uh, page, can you see what page that was, Brian? No. 
<laughs> well, we'll talk about it in a second because we'll start talking yeah. about the new one in a second, and I can yeah. kind of give people an example. Yeah, yeah. The, the um, I gave I gave Netley a kind of carriage that that I changed it halfway through, but on this one. I decided it should be a more modest carriage. I'd gone and given him a limousine. This one should be more modest. So mm -hmm. I was able to re retroactively give him the right carriage from the beginning. Ah, okay. Things like that. There's once or twice I just couldn't find this. But I'm going to be drawing this before Google. I, I don't even know. I Before I had a computer. I, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have mm -hmm. a first computer until 1995. I drew, uh -huh. most, I drew most of this before then. Most of from out. Um, I couldn't locate photographs for some of those buildings in Chapter Four, where, where Gull is doing the tour of, of London. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, that's an incredible part of the book. Yeah. Now, 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 I was able to find. So I was. I, I've replaced those panels with the, what they should have been in the first place. Ah, wow. Things, things like that. So it's not just coloring. I've, I, there's. Uh, I've, I've, I've not gone back and made it the book the way I would do it now. I've, I've gone back and made it the way I should have done it 20, 20, 25 years ago if I'd been able to get all the information that I needed. Right. There's, another, there's one or two other places where, you know, Mary Kelly's room, I've made it look too spacious, too open. Mm. So I've gone in close. You can't just zoom in. You've got to move to make, to make the perspective work. You've got to move the parts a little bit. I've, I've done a little bit of that so that we're more in a, a claustrophobic little uh, flat in London. Right. In, in, in Victorian times that, that had a low ceiling and hardly any room. Mm -hmm. um, things like that. Things, mm -hmm. like, things where I've looked at it and thought, I didn't quite get that right. I've, I've fixed it now. It, it, I've got yeah. it. I think that's amazing. It's such a cool opportunity to, to be able to go back. And like you say, to say, you know, this is what I was trying to do then. And now I can actually yeah. make it as good as possible. And just so people get an idea, when it comes to the colorization of the new version, um, you, you've, you're using a very modest, if we can tell it all, I got to get my mic out of my way a little bit here. But if people can see this at all, it's a very modest use of color. You know, like there's a lot of black and white still going on here with just some, you know, some shades yeah. and stuff, some browns, some reds. But it's it's not you know overly colorified. What what you know were what were your decisions regarding this sort of there, muted palette and everything that there, you did end up using two, for the color version? There are one or two places where sudden blinding color does break. That's into, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like when we were suddenly the spirit of Gaul is in the sky over the Mediterranean. Suddenly mm -hmm. it's, it's blindingly ultramarine ultramarine blue. Right. With, yeah. Uh, little things like that were, and then when he's looking into the sun, oh, there's there's one place near the end where Alan wanted a, an effect of white on white, mm -hmm. and which just I'm not sure how you would do that with black ink, <laughs> and and I did my best with the black ink, but I was able I was able to get a much better uh, result of what Alan wanted there. That's with, cool. With, with the full palette of colors, mm -hmm. an effect of white on white. Of, of is he actually? I'm giving them way, way too much of the story here. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I mean, imagines, I as he imagines himself rising up among the the 
the pantheon of the gods. <laughs> I don't think you're like, giving away too much. I think you're blinding, making it sound. If people don't know what we're talking about, they're going to be a fascinated. Blinding, a blinding white. Yeah, there's, white. yeah, there's, white. there's so many amazing sequences in the book, and and you know, and, you know, and in the story, and in your you know visualization of the story, how much um, you know you're mentioning that Alan had ideas about this white on white. How much did you guys work together in terms of like what he wanted to see and what you thought it should look like? I mean, what was the collaboration? We really, well, we didn't really talk about it unless there was a problem, because mm-hmm. as I said, I was living in Australia. And uh, an international phone call back then was seemed to be more expensive than it is now. I don't. I don't People have no idea what that's all about. <laughs> it's like air travel. Mm-hmm. Air travel hasn't hasn't become more expensive. Air travel has not. The, the price of air travel has has not changed as much as the price of cookies. <laughs> proportionately. Yeah, I, I can, I can, I can still go to another continent for less, you know, for, for less than two thousand bucks and and back, mm. which is what I would have said in the nineties. I would have said, you know, I'd go to America for two thousand bucks and back. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's about the same now. It wouldn't cost me any more now to do it. It's mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's kind of like a computer still costs really two or three thousand dollars if you're getting a, you know, what I mean, like a reasonable computer. Yeah. It's just uh, yeah, yeah. I, I remember, in the '90s, we would have thought they'd be you know a hundred dollars by now. I remember my father-in-law; he was the f- in Australia. Oh. He was the first one in his little town to get in a a word processor. Mm. Cost him like yeah, for the office. It cost him like twenty-five thousand. Oh my god! <laughs> to install this word processor for the secretaries to use. Boy, that was a, a hell of a time to be an early adopter of anything. Yeah. Uh, you were really taking the plunge for everybody. Yeah. Now everybody's got a computer in their pocket. No doubt. Oh. I know. I, I try well, to think about the, the stuff I was trying girl, to use in the 90s was was so terrible, and it's still yeah. way better than – uh, yeah. All the girls have got a computer in their back pocket. Pocket that's twice as, twice as powerful as the average desktop thing we had in the 90s. And, and the way and – when, Way back when, everybody was concerned about the shape of their ass, you know. Nowadays, people just stick all their stuff in their back. <laughs> all the mm. girls have got all this stuff in their back pockets. Yeah. Mm. And this at is first, this is the travesty. At first, <laughs> thought, at first, I thought they were carrying tins of tobacco because back, oh, yeah. back in the seventies, if you had a big square thing in your back pocket, it was, <laughs> it was a tin of it was a tin of tobacco. It was a yeah. tin of rolling tobacco. You know. I know they're all yeah. rolling their own, right? <laughs> Everybody's got this big rectangular thing in their back pockets. Mm-hmm. It's so weird jeans, how we're... Their, their jeans are all splitting in different places because they're all mm-hmm. stuff in their back pockets. And everybody's quite happy with that. It's in the 1970s, how... you would never... The girls would never put anything in their in their pockets for... for yeah. How the world has changed. I how know. Would it, how would it <laughs> That's true. Showing my age. Yeah. Jordash. Yeah, that was a thing. I do. I remember that. I remember those Brooke Shields commercials when I was like twelve. They were mesmerizing. Yeah, (laughs) some very early ideas got cemented in your your mind. I didn't even know what was going on, but I knew I liked those commercials. (laughs) Wait a minute, that's the girl from Blue Lagoon. Yeah, no, I've heard uh, about that. <laughs> I, do, I do think it's interesting how like the, the 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 mediums and the technology change, and certain things people will deeply resist, and other things people will just wreck their 
always good and you know like changing the, the ripping apart your your clothing or whatever just so you can have this thing as an appendage on you now you know i think it's interesting how like we'll let some things through the gate and completely take over our lives and then other things you know we we duly resist uh but you know in terms of like uh again you know like i think what's interesting for uh anyone in any medium uh eddie is just thinking about how technology has informed what they've done over a long arc of time and i think again like what you've done is really fascinating i love the idea that you've uh sort of let go of that um the you've you've not made it harder on yourself than it needed to be and i <laughs> and i and i do say that like not a lot of people can make that turn you know i think that it's it's a weird you know uh the nineties. And then if you made it through the nineties and got into the two thousands and we're already kind of up on things a little bit, I think it was really helpful because, you know, I see a lot of people even now just turning really to technology to start doing more with whatever it is, you know, their medium is. And uh, I'm like, wow, on one hand, it's like they missed all the bad, terrible things of the last 25 years that never actually really worked. Right. Um, everything actually functions now. But I do, um, I do find it interesting though, that, that, uh, you know, for those of us that are, there's only, if you look at generations and spans of time, I mean, we're going to be this one generation of humanity that folded right over into the information age and yeah. these, the levels of adaptation and uh, processing of information while trying to build creative ideas in a practice or to do whatever it is you're doing. Uh, it's a very unique situation right now. I find a lot of the, the youngsters doing, doing comics now are purists about certain things. Like, in, in, in a book I did a few years ago called The Lovely Horrible Stuff, um, when uh, my car, I've got, I had a blue car, but every time my wife and I are getting in the blue car, I've used a photo of the blue car. And what interested me was the, the incongruity of a cartoon figure getting in a, in a, in a photograph of a car every time. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, all through that book, I... I, I well, I won't go into the details of the book, but I, I used lots of tricks where, where I, I, I was interested in, in, in the, uh, the the contrasts of one kind of image mixed in with other kinds of image. But a lot of these youngsters now say to me, said, oh, that's cheating, Eddie. You, can't, you, can't. <laughs> you should have drawn that. that <laughs> I, was, I, I didn't buy this book to see you taking a photo. You should have drawn. So I don't know. I, it's funny, the... There's a pure, a purest aesthetic about what you shouldn't, should, and shouldn't do. While we're talking about color, there's. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to turn a lot. Oh, can you can you yeah. see it? There's. Yeah, give us a tour. Can you see? There's a. Yeah, it looks good. To give the the reader a, a, an example, that was a particularly abstract sequence of. Anyway, there's things like that that are just. Because you were you were putting it over there as something that was full of um, uh, mundane and banal colours, I was just letting the reader know that there's a there's a bit of coloristic excitement in this book. <laughs> in this book, I noticed that I'm getting a bit grainy. I'm going to just nip over there and turn the light on here. Do you notice that? I'm my, because the light's gone from the window. Oh, yeah, that's fine. I think uh, this, it's a. Uh, I, I really think it's it's an interesting. Uh, thing to think about the way that, you know, technology, you know, impresses itself into our work. And I think, you know, uh, we're all, you know, talking about this, this same time period that, you know, 
where we went, you know, into the computer age, basically, and, and, and the way that that's affected things. I was thinking about it just the other day in terms of how music works nowadays and all the, all the ways that, that, you know, digital technology has democratized music and made it easier to do and made it possible to do so much on your own. But at the same time, it's also like, uh, you know, scrambled the business in such a way that, you know, uh, it's, you know, uh, lots of people can participate, but, but lots of people can't necessarily make a dime doing it. You know what I mean? So it's bad. It's cut both ways in a way. The important thing with, with music and art, see music is, it's not a, it's an oral skill and, and art is, is a visual skill. Mm-hmm. It's not that we just, we're not using the hands anymore. If, even if you're not using actual instruments like a, a violin or whatever, mm-hmm. to make a piece of music, you still need the oral skill. You, you still have right. to hear it in your mind's ear before you make the thing mm-hmm. in order to be, to create good music. It, it right. doesn't happen accidentally. You have to, even if you're using tape loops and whatever, you you still have to know what you're doing. You still right. have to be able to hear a thing before you can make that thing happen. You know, it's not yeah. going to happen by accident. Right. And and the same with 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 especially in a 600-page comic, it's something like that is not going to happen accidentally. You have to bloody know what you're doing. <laughs> and I think it's a, it's a kind of I'm not sure I'd want to be starting now because. The market for for the graphic novel is such that there's no market for little things. A, mm. a new a new writer artist has to create this huge book. is expected to by 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 publishers to to bring them uh, their first book has got to be a 500 page thing, mm-hmm. which, which, is, which is that the poor artist or writer cartoonist he hasn't he or she because. Uh, it's half and half these days. Mm-hmm. Young ladies making great books, but they haven't a chance to, through trial and effort, trial and error, through trial and error, to work out what it is they're doing. Like like we used to have, yeah. Like even From Hell came out in, a, in an anthology way back at the beginning, right? Yeah, it came out in parts, and, and then and then it came out in in volumes. You know, for for ten years it came out in little slim packages, right? A chapter at a time, before I, before we put it all together, and and even before I started, I've been working for ten years putting out all kinds of stuff, short right. stories. I had, there was a market for short stories or one pagers and things, which there isn't anymore. A mm-hmm. young person arriving now has got to go away and conceive a whole book. Which I don't think is a great thing. I, I think that it'd be much better if there was a place where they could work things out first. Right. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that to me, that makes total sense. That you know, that it's 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 uh, it's a lot to ask of you know uh, an artist to like you know, where's your Game of Thrones? And it's like, can I like maybe I could start with like you know an, an origin story that's like twelve pages long. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. So I think it's. I think it's. Yeah. I think. It makes sense. I mean, and especially too, because like, you know, to some degree, you know, you're talking about learning story structures and things like that in terms of like the authors of these things, you know, and it's like that's, you know, that's stuff you can work out on a small scale and then blow up, you know what I mean? Once you have a better understanding of it, but, you know, and, and it's the thing that, you know, it's, it's, you know, if, you know, the, 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 
the buying and selling of, of little things is not a, you know, it's a good, it's a good place to learn because if something's terrible, it's okay. No, you know, nobody invested a bunch in it. Nobody lost a bunch on it. It's all right. You can have a failed small thing, but if you have a failed big thing, now it's a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, your whole career is riding on this thing. If, you're, if your first 500 page book's a disaster, what do you do after that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, it exponentially reduces the amount of just iterations and growth that can happen across the entire you know business or or genre or medium or whatever because if you're if the barrier to entry is so high and that's the only step that people are really afforded to then really fail on then you're going to have exponentially less micro failures they're going to get you to something like the whole growth of everything is slowed down hugely. Yeah. What about on the other side of things, Eddie? So, so we're talking about how, how, you know, technology has actually, you know, afforded you a way to do things easier than you used to be able to do them and to be able to use the colors the way you would have wanted to in the beginning if you'd have had the, the means. Um, what about on the other side of things? Do you have any sort of like from your own point of view as a reader or, you know, in terms of, you know, the readers out there who enjoy your works, um, do you have any sense of like, you know, whether people should be reading, you know, printed pages or whether they should just read stuff on a, on a digital tablet? Do you have any opinion about those things? Um, I've done one or two books where, um, with the ebook versions, were so, I, I, I don't know why, unless they could actually just serve up a page that looked exactly like the pages I'd done it. They, they were, I'm talking about illustrated books here. I'm thinking, why, why would anybody want this? I won't mention the name of the book, but why would anybody want this as, a, as an e-book if it looks like this? Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure people... I'm not even sure people care. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I meet so many people that they just, not, they don't know how to look at it as a work of art. They just want mm -hmm. to know who did what to whom. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when, even when I was a kid, I, I didn't, I didn't really want to, I wasn't that interested in, uh, you know, whether Thor was stronger than the Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't care, you know. <laughs> I really wasn't interested. I was more interested in it whether whether Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were getting along, you know, uh -huh. whether they were happy. I went, we're over there in New York, you know. I, I want to know what their lives are like. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and I'd pick up an, an issue just to see what they were doing. Oh, what was Jack doing this week? Um, but since since the whole of academia has got into the into comics, into reading comics and reading the graphic novel, the whole thing seems to have gone back to what characters are doing to each other, mm -hmm. and they use that they use that to then talk about postmodernism or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they use that to talk about philosophers, but. Mm -hmm. But they, just, they don't care about the artist anyway. They don't care about the writer or the artist. They, they just, they use that to talk about other stuff. Mm -hmm. They use that to talk about um, late period capitalism or something. To break <laughs>
the breakdown of social transactions or, or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm only seeing yeah. this thing from a distance. The Green Goblet and the breakdown of the social contract. It seems, <laughs> it seems to me they've gone all the way back to, to, to talking about whether Thor is more powerful than the Hulk. Uh -huh. it, 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 it seems a reversal to me. They, they care too much about what's happening. <laughs> mm -hmm. they, they care too much about what's happening in the comic. I think. Yeah, and not so much about like you know, just, like you say about the, the idea that the thing is a work of art, you know, that can be observed as a work of art. You yeah, know? yeah. So Eddie, as you know, we talk to a lot of uh, you know mixed martial artists, uh, fighters, uh, and coaches, and people in the media around the sport, and it's a very interesting parallel there um, in the sense that uh, we often find the people that sort of tend to either intellectualize these things or, or think about them perhaps from a more artistic point of view, get frustrated with people that, you know, in the fight game that are just concerned with like, can the big guy beat the, you know, can the punch, you know, the guy that can strike really well, can he beat the guy that, you know, uh, yeah. can wrestle really well. And just, it, it's, it, they, they hyper uh, refine it to these uh, sort of childlike, uh, polarities, you know, where it's like, I, I don't know. And then can the, can the American guy beat the Russian guy? Or I don't know. It <laughs> just put the stuff into these buckets so quickly. And, uh, and so for those that are perhaps a little bit more, uh, you know, weird are like, who cares, man, there's so much inside this that is so much more interesting. And you're not even allowing yourself that because you're, you're entertaining these, these polarities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about that? I mean, do you think that some of that I mean, mentality, that, that some of that... I'm just going sh to show off another colors. Yeah, right. please this do. This is what I was talking about earlier with the, with, where I was talking about the, you know, we suddenly switched to very vivid colors. Mm -hmm. um, just as, a, as an example of what I was talking about. Um, what were you saying? Um, I was just going to say that, do you think that... Um, to what degree does that, um, you know, that that uh, Hulk Thor sort of mentality that seems to be part of the mentality that maybe is is behind like the the superhero movie culture. You know what I mean? And the fact that those things have become and when I, I, I like many of the superhero movies and I don't not really like a, uh, you know, snobby about that kind of thing. But I mean, it is such a huge phenomenon. And it's it's an interesting thing to think about comics being thought of as a kid's thing. Then comics being taken very seriously as an adult form of literature, essentially, which is what part of the legacy of what From Hell was able to do, and now it's turned into mass entertainment for them for everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's quite good the whole that, that whole um, Marvel cinematic universe. Mm -hmm. I thought it was quite cleverly done, but um, I was no like, doubt. I always liked the bits where they weren't saving the universe. Remember. Remember, five years has passed, and they they have to go and find Bruce Banner, and he's he's become this Professor Hulk. <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah, see more of that. Forget all this universe saving shit. I can't be bothered with that. <laughs> yeah, or, or or what Iron Man's worried. Maybe he could invent a way to go back in time. But what if he changed the past and he he no longer had his daughter? I I thought that was a great moment. I thought we should see more of that. Uh -huh. uh, I thought it was great, and I thought it was funny that Martin Scorsese got involved in, in an argument there, where he where he was saying that all of this stuff, 
there's no cinema anymore. Cinema's broken. So I can't remember <laughs> the exact words. Were. Cinema, cinema ain't what it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of a. I think it's you know. I think there's there's always. I think there's always going to be people who feel that. I mean, there's so many angles to it. I think there's people who will will never take you know comic books seriously as you know as a high cultural art form. I think there's also people who you know are uh, you know fanatics for comics who are you know they're they've got that purest attitude about the book they read when they were twelve and and they want it to be like that. But but the movie's kind of being made for kids nowadays. You know what I mean? There's there's all yeah. these different vying you know sort of things, and it's like just enjoy them. I mean, like like you said, those Marvel movies to me were a great mix of. Most yeah. of them are a great mix of action and uh, and thoughtful characters and good writing yeah. and good filmmaking. I mean, many of them are, are quite good. Yeah. Where I come from, we'd say to Scorsese, uh, I'll stop being a silly bollocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably the right response to that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I do think that... Um, you know, for, for, you, for you, Eddie, you know, it's something where when, when you have... Uh, you've done the autobiographical work. You've done a lot, you know, you've, you've looked at, you've, you've been in, in uh, other worlds and you've reflected your own. Um, in terms well of said, the, Brian. <laughs> thank you. Oh, <laughs> way, I'm telling you, that's my favorite effing thing is when a writer says, Hey, that's a good line. I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, le- I'm leaving the room. I'm leaving on a high note. I'm out. I mean, it takes a lot of me wandering to get to those things. So I appreciate your patience. <laughs> but, uh, but no, but I, I guess I was curious, Eddie, about like um, your formative years because, you know, we tend to attach a lot of, it's a strange amalgam of, uh, uh, as um, Hakim Bey would say, Joe, he would say it's, it's mm. a, an amalgam of prosthesis and sentimentality, <laughs> you know, where it's just like there's, <laughs> there's, there's something about your formative years uh, where on one hand, you know, what you were impressed with, most by that informs most of maybe what your trajectory was. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes you look back on it and you're like, God, that was really cheesy or I don't know what I was thinking, but I guess I was curious. Some work holds up, right? Some stuff doesn't, but um, what was, what were you most formed? And as by? you get older, as you yeah. get older, there's more of that, you know? Yeah. I, you, know, more of, oh, you know, you try to go to sleep at night. You remember, you remember every <laughs> stupid, embarrassing thing you ever did. <laughs> yeah, it sucks that the catalog of memories is only getting broader, which means we have that much more to source of dumbass things that we did or said, <laughs> uh, or or works or you know points of view that we proudly stood behind that were clearly uh, whatever. You know, yeah, it's it's a problem getting older because you just have a, a greater collection of problems. And it, <laughs> and as people people you know as, as you get older, people. People are dying. People, as people die, I think, oh, I can stop worrying about that time. I upset them. <laughs> yeah. No, well, exactly. My, can, that's true. I can, right? stop, I can stop letting that one keep me awake at night. <laughs> my my funny thing that I'm running into right now with a lot of my sort of colleagues and friends that are, you know, we're all in the sort of late 40s, early 50s, maybe zone, maybe early 40s to early 50s, but we're all like, you know, everybody's like refreshing their camera gear or getting new studio monitors or various pieces of equipment. And the decision making for things, like if you're buying something now, if it's of consequence, a house or a whatever, you know, it's just funny that your consumer decisions immediately become like, well, this is probably going to be the last one of these things that I'm going to need. Like, I don't, this is, these are my forever speakers, you know, or <laughs> like these, you, you digest your own mortality in these little doses of like, 
acquisition of resources. You're like, oh, that's the last one I'll need. So, all right. <laughs> you open your shirt drawer in the morning and you think, are they? Are these t-shirts going to see me to the end? Am I going to get <laughs> how many new ones will I need to get? <laughs> oh my god! Was that Oliver Wendell Holmes? Wasn't it? Uh, he had the poem about um, something about uh, the uh, britches. Like he, he made a poem about his favorite pair of jeans that were, you know, falling apart, and it was this whole sort of mortality play, you know, but. <laughs> But uh, but it was also really festive and fun. But I just remember he keeps talking about uh, yeah, his uh, something about he he rhymed in some way his er, his earthly stitches with his his dungarees in some way that <laughs> I, I will always remember. But uh, but yeah, pair of jeans is the same thing. You're like, damn, I really like these are these are my jeans. Like I, I you don't just get jeans. Like jeans find you. This is a whole thing. <laughs> or maybe maybe Eddie, I'm just wrong. And what I'm not realizing is that in ten years. I won't be wearing jeans anymore. Maybe you just don't, maybe you just let the jeans thing go. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Your knee, your knees won't bend so well in jeans. That I'm going to go. I'm going <laughs> to those baggy trousers. that old <laughs> Just enough to get yeah, up yeah. the your, golf cart. Your trousers start getting, <laughs> They won't be. They'll start to get too baggy at the bottom. You have to start. What's a John Betjeman line in a John Betjeman poem? I grow old. I grow, or is or is it uh, T. S. Eliot? I can't remember. I grow old. I grow old. I wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. <laughs> I think it's T. S. Eliot. Actually. That's like good. The moment you your vanity gives up on custom tailored clothing. <laughs> it's just it's, like a, it's just survival now i just roll them up i'm good <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right so uh we should probably get this wrapped up here uh but eddie i uh would love to give you an opportunity to say anything or bring up anything that you feel of uh import or uh anything that you think that people might especially want to want to know about uh and their pathway to your latest um nope i've got nothing more to say <laughs> well then i'll just put this on the screen how about that oh we we went um yeah i put the ladies on the cover this time oh well done <laughs> we, we thought it was we thought it was high time we we put the i never i i always avoided doing uh sensational covers at the very beginning i, I made a rule that we just have still life on the covers so the first the very first volume had a, a top hat with grapes <laughs> and um there was another one had a had a had a, a, a candle with a cell phone but but all of them all of them were, were still lives i wanted to avoid sensationalism at all costs um uh and still so finally finally we put the the ladies on the cover. Pleased about that. Yeah, it looks great. I mean, it's a great looking book. It's it's uh, it's a really nice volume to me as someone again who's been a huge fan of From Hell since it came out. I I really do love this new book as well. I really kind of think you need both of those. There's actually a book also called I think is is it it's, uh, I'm not going to be able to. It's, I think it's called The From Hell Companion. Are you familiar with that book? Oh yes. What I wrote. <laughs> Oh, do you wrote that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's in my notes. <laughs> it, uh, 
Well, when I say I wrote it, I it it almost amounts to a retelling of From Hell, but using ancillary ancillary materials. Like I used uh, large samples of Alan Moore's scripts, um, uh, scans of Alan Moore's notebooks where he's done little thumbnail drawings, and different things, documents that he'd written, or interviews that he'd that he'd made, um, using. And I've introduced each section with a little essay of my own about what it, why, why I'm putting these things together. So yeah, the From Hell Companion. Yeah, I, I think it's... So if you've read From Hell and you're, you're looking for deeper thoughts, a deeper dive into it, uh, the From Hell Companion. Yeah, it's not, it's not just a lightweight um, book with, with photos of the author and pictures of... <laughs> No photographs of, of, of from the period or whatever. It, it's it's a it's a it's another think. It's it's a it's a thinking man's revision of of the material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. I think you know, and, and thanks for correcting me. I'm sitting here with my Eddie Campbell notes, and I'm like, oh, have you heard of this book? <laughs> so, but um, but uh, uh, but it's true. And I think, I mean, I'm what I'm I'm bringing it up because to me, I feel like. If you're new to From Hell and you've never read From Hell before, I would say get the companion too and like sort of read them together. Cause I found the companion to be like, I mean, it was like, I love the, I was so taken by From Hell. And it's, it's such a dense, like you keep saying, I mean, it's a big book, but it's a dense book too. There's a lot going on. And especially for Americans, there's a whole bunch going on regarding, you know, English history and, and slang and all sorts of things that it's really helpful to have the companion because you really, you really illuminate it and really sort of bring all these details to life in a way that I think, you know, I would have, I would have missed a lot of things about how, you know, a lot of why I think that book is so amazing is because of just how much, just how broad it goes and then how it pulls it all together. It's just this whole deep complex universe. And I really feel like the companion helps uh, the understanding of all that. From hell too is the first, I think it's the first comic that's got end notes. <laughs> right. Yeah. 50 pages of Alan's end notes. Yeah, I was flipping back and forth during the whole time yeah. I was reading that because there's there's so much going on with the endnotes. But yeah, between the endnotes and the companion, I think I think you really kind of need all that to to get to understand just how really really uh, marvelous the book is. Yeah. I think that there's also uh, another way, Joe, which is to just not know what the hell's going on and just plow through it anyway, and let <laughs> that's true too. That's true let too. yourself have this kind of tangential, weird. Like sometimes I understand, sometimes I'm just right. Yep. Perceiving yeah. things, you know, I've, I've I've definitely seen many accounts of you know people that never leveraged or utilized the endnotes and just like went through it and then realized 20 years later that they really should actually understand the book. <laughs> it's a great, you know, it's a great a, piece of, it's a great what piece a profound of experience to have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great piece of story to, you know, it's mine, but I did my best. To illustrate thumbs up from Alan's Eddie Campbell. Great piece of storytelling. And as I said, with the, with the new edition, I've, I've gone back to fine tune some of the places where, where I thought I'd failed to, to do the best with it, but we kept all the clutter out of out of the way. There, there are sequences with no words in them. Uh, all the clutter, all the words, all the why did we make this interpretation of the facts and so on? All that is in the is in the notes. But uh, but just to read it, it's a it, you can glide through whole sequences where where things are happening happening quite quickly. 
like little uh it's almost like the airport uh moving sidewalks there's <laughs> well i gotta tell you again I, I think it's i think it's actually good timing that that you know uh it took us a minute to get you you know scheduled for the show that we had to delay it for a week because of our technical problems i think i'm sitting here on a very sort of spooky rainy fall day in nashville and i think it's a great time of year for somebody who's you know brand new to this story it's Get that book right now. Get the new master edition. Enjoy these beautiful colors and and read a scary book about, uh, you know, I mean, we're now in this whole true crime era that everybody's so interested in. There's no better true crime story than the Jack the Ripper story and especially this version of it. Yeah. The, also, the color one doesn't cost that much more than the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a bargain. <laughs> it doesn't cost that much more than the, uh, the black and white one, which I think I can't remember. Is it 40? <laughs> I never noticed things like so that. send a, order, send a check payable a, to you or how does that work when I order a book off the internet when, the, when you order a book on Amazon there's a little, when it gives you the, the data on the book it tells you how heavy it is <laughs> now, when I talked to a pal of mine I said well just order, I've just ordered a new book it's it's 15 pounds <laughs> in weight and wait, yeah, exactly. This book isn't quite fifteen pounds, but it's definitely you're getting your money's worth in terms of actual volume. That's for sure. Still yeah. heavy, man. Yeah, it's heavy on every level. It's a heavy book to to drag around. It's a heavy book to process. It's it's, but in the best possible way. It's it's really fantastic. And Eddie, I can't thank you enough. Not only for your great work on this great book that you know, it's definitely been. Uh, something that's improved my life in terms of like being able to enjoy a great story. That's like beautiful to look at. Um, uh, but also I want to thank you again for being so patient with us and for coming back a week later and just trusting the fact that we actually could make this thing happen. And uh, <laughs> you've been uh, nothing but, you know, again, a gentleman throughout all this. And I really appreciate your patience and, uh, and you're taking the time to, to be with us this week on the art five podcast. Well, thanks Joe. Thanks Brian. Can you still yeah. see me? I've gone. Yeah, we can see you. <laughs> We can make you full screen even. No, yeah. no, I've frozen. I can, you've got, I've frozen again. I think oh, okay. I put the book back on the table. Suddenly everything froze. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, uh, go ahead, Eddie. We can do these extraordinarily complicated things with, with a little device that fits in your briefcase. I'm, yeah. I'm doing all of this with a laptop here. Yeah, yeah me too. I do everything on this tiny laptop. I design books on this tiny laptop. It's amazing that you can carry around the world with you in, in your briefcase. Mm -hmm. I remember when you bought a new computer, you had to you had to take the car and load it in with things sticking out the windows, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because because you always had to buy a bit of shelving to carry it, you know. To, <laughs> you, had to, you had to buy a compartment for it to sit on. <laughs> you get. Oh, I think. Oh, we did lost we lose him. him for real? Yeah, I think we lost him. Okay. Well, well what should, should we see if he pops back in? Well, I think that we need to wrap it up, but we'll 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 finalize with him, um, and we'll make sure that in the show notes everybody gets uh, all the information that they need. But uh, there's the yeah, website there's Eddie's right there. website. Oh, right there's there. Eddie again. Oh, he's back. I, I can't. We were just there. We he were, is. We were just, just selling the book the, for you. I was just saying how good the the equipment was, and then it cut. <laughs> <laughs> it's marvelous. What you it's, it's incredible what we can do. It's like people are up in the sky, thirty thousand feet up, and they're complaining that the Wi-Fi doesn't work. You know, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can, exactly. Phone some, you can phone somebody from the sky. <laughs> you know, yeah. You're complaining. Yeah, it's crazy. Sound just cuts out. <laughs> well, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and do the send off now, uh, Eddie. Hang on for one second. We'll give you a little. We're gonna take two more minutes of your time after we turn the uh, the live 
lights the live feed off. off. Uh, but anyway, but thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks for, okay, for listening thanks, and watching. Thanks, and, uh, yeah. thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week. Thanks again, Eddie. Okay, guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast. And once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and, and help us out. Again, anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on support this podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone.